This is Murder Minute. I'm your host, Mrs. Smitty, and today is Monday, August 23rd, 2021. Today on Murder Minute, the story of a prolific rapist and serial killer who was born on this day in 1943. But first, your true crime headlines. The sex crimes trial of R. Kelly is underway in a federal court in Brooklyn, New York. The disgraced R&B artist faces charges including child pornography, kidnapping, obstruction of justice, sex trafficking, and racketeering. The trial will take place in the Eastern District of New York. Kelly is also facing federal sex crimes charges in the Northern District of Illinois and state-level charges in Illinois and Minnesota. The charges stem from alleged incidents dating back to 1998 involving six women and girls. Some of the victims are expected to testify. Last week, the presiding judge agreed to allow prosecutors to introduce evidence of R. Kelly's 1994 marriage to an underage girl named in court documents as Jane Doe No. 1, whose description matches the late R&B singer Aaliyah. According to prosecutors, Kelly married Aaliyah when she was 15 and he was 27, after ordering an associate to bribe government officials to make a fake ID showing that she was 18. Prosecutors allege that the marriage took place because R. Kelly believed that Aaliyah was pregnant and he sought to shield himself from criminal charges because a wife can't be forced to testify against her husband. The secret marriage was annulled soon after it took place and Aaliyah tragically died in a plane crash in 2001. R. Kelly has pleaded not guilty to all the charges against him. He's been in custody since his arrest in July of 2019 and is facing decades in prison if convicted. A former Arizona state senator was indicted on six felony charges related to the alleged molestation of two young boys. Tony Navarrete, who represented parts of Phoenix and Glendale in the Arizona State Senate since 2018, was arrested on August 5th and released on bond two days later. According to the indictment, Navarrete molested one of the victims beginning when he was 12 or 13 years old and admitted to the crimes in a phone call with the boy, which was recorded by police. Navarrete resigned from the Senate on August 10th and released a statement denying the charges against him. If he is convicted, he faces a mandatory minimum sentence of 49 years behind bars. A Colorado animal rights attorney has been sentenced to 10 years in prison after she pleaded guilty to numerous felony charges related to a murder-for-hire plot targeting her estranged husband's new girlfriend. 43-year-old Jennifer Reba Emmy was arrested in January for allegedly soliciting two employees on her Colorado ranch to kill the woman who had worked as an au pair for the married couple prior to her relationship with Emmy's husband. Emmy pleaded guilty last month to charges including stalking, solicitation to commit second-degree murder, and retaliation against a witness. She received 10-year sentences for each of those crimes to be served concurrently. She was given credit for seven months of time she has already served. Those were your true crime headlines, and after the break, our main story. In the 1970s, game shows were one of the hottest things on television. Viewers loved to tune in and watch contestants win cash, prizes, even dates. One of the most popular game shows of the 70s was The Dating Game. On The Dating Game, an eligible bachelorette would interview three bachelors who were seated out of her view but in view of the audience. Based on their answers to her questions, she would choose one as the winner. That winner would then introduce himself to the woman who had chosen him, and the show's host would tell the new couple what was in store for their first date. The show was a big hit, 
and over the years it featured some contestants who would go on to achieve tremendous fame, including stars like Farrah Fawcett and Tom Selleck. One 1978 episode, however, featured a bachelor who would gain infamy as one of the most notorious killers in American history. By the time he appeared on The Dating Game as Bachelor Number 1, Rodney Alcala had already murdered at least five women. While he hadn't been connected to those killings just yet, he had already served three years in prison for child molestation and appeared on the FBI's 10 Most Wanted list. I'll tell you more about those crimes in a bit. When he made his appearance on The Dating Game, the show's host described Rodney as a successful photographer, and his answers were charming enough to entice bachelorette Cheryl Bradshaw to choose him for a date. Once the cameras stopped rolling and they had a chance to chat, Cheryl decided to refuse the date, telling producers that she found Rodney to be creepy and he gave her bad vibes. This sentiment was later echoed by one of the men who sat next to Rodney on the panel, who described the photographer as a very weird dude with bizarre opinions. After his appearance on The Dating Game, Rodney Alcala would go on to commit at least three more murders, one of which would finally lead to his capture and arrest. Rodney Alcala's crimes began almost a decade before his appearance on The Dating Game, and signs of trouble emerged even earlier than that. Rodney had enlisted in the U.S. Army at the age of 17. Four years later, in 1964, he went AWOL after having a nervous breakdown, hitchhiking from Fort Bragg, North Carolina, to his mother's home in Los Angeles. He was medically discharged after a military psychiatrist diagnosed him with antisocial personality disorder. After leaving the Army, Alcala enrolled in the UCLA School of Fine Arts, earning a bachelor's degree in 1968. Later that year, he would commit his first known violent crime. On September 25, 1968, eight-year-old Tally Shapiro was walking to school along Sunset Boulevard in Hollywood when Alcala pulled up beside her and asked if she wanted a ride. The second grader told the man that she didn't talk to strangers, but he assured her that he knew her parents and she reluctantly got into his car. A good Samaritan observed this interaction and followed Alcala's car to his apartment nearby, then called police to describe what he'd just witnessed. When police arrived a short time later, they knocked on the apartment door. Rodney Alcala appeared at the window, telling him that he had been in the shower. Police broke down his front door and found the little girl, naked and bloody, with a metal rod pressed against her neck. Alcala fled out the back door, narrowly escaping capture as officers focused on saving the little girl's life. Tally Shapiro would spend 32 days in a coma and months in the hospital as a result of the brutal attack. After she recovered, her parents relocated the entire family to Puerto Vallarta, Mexico, where they remained for several years. She would later tell reporters that she had no memory of entering Alcala's apartment and no memory of the attack that nearly cost her her life. As for Alcala, he left California and made his way to New York, where he enrolled in the NYU Film School under the alias John Berger. Though he was featured on the FBI's 10 Most Wanted list, Alcala didn't live like a fugitive. He studied under Roman Polanski at NYU, went out to bars, and continued promoting himself as an amateur photographer. It was during this time that he would rape and murder a 23-year-old flight attendant named Cornelia Crilly. After Crilly's boyfriend had made several attempts to get in touch with her, he contacted police, who found Cornelia dead in her apartment. She had been sexually assaulted and strangled with a pair of stockings, and she had deep bite marks on her body. These bite marks would connect Rodney Alcala to the crime, but not until many years later. During his years at NYU, Rodney Alcala worked summers at an all-girls drama camp in New Hampshire. It was at this camp in 1971 that two girls recognized his face on a wanted poster in the post office and alerted the camp's director, 
who contacted police. In August of 1971, Alcala was arrested and returned to Los Angeles to stand trial for the rape and attempted murder of eight-year-old Tali Shapiro. Unfortunately for prosecutors, Tali and her family had relocated to Mexico, and they weren't willing to put the young girl through the trauma of testifying against her attacker. Without their star witness, there was no way to make a case against Alcala for the rape and attempted murder, so prosecutors offered him a plea deal that sent him to jail for less than three years. Shortly after his release in 1974, he was arrested again, this time for kidnapping and assaulting a 13-year-old girl. He went back to jail and spent about two and a half years behind bars. In the summer of 1977, he was released from prison after it was determined that he had been reformed by self-improvement programs he took part in while he was incarcerated. As a condition of his release, Rodney Alcala was required to report to a parole officer once a week. His parole officer approved a request for him to travel to New York to visit relatives shortly after his release. He had been in New York for less than a week when a young woman named Ellen Hover went missing. The last time she had been seen alive was July 15, 1977. On her calendar for that day, she had a meeting scheduled with a photographer named John Berger. At the end of the summer of 1977, Rodney Alcala returned to Los Angeles, where he was hired to work as a typesetter for the Los Angeles Times. By mid-November, he had murdered yet another young woman. Her name was Jill Barcombe, and she was just 18 years old when she was found dead in the Hollywood Hills. Jill had been sexually assaulted, bludgeoned, and strangled to death with a pair of blue pants. In December of 1977, the FBI reached out to the LAPD regarding the disappearance of Ellen Hover in New York. Hover was believed to have met with a man named John Berger just before her death, and the FBI knew that this was an alias used by Rodney Alcala. He was brought in for questioning on December 14th, but with no body and no direct evidence, police had no choice but to let him go. Just days later, a 27-year-old nurse named Georgia Wickstead would become Alcala's next victim. Alcala used a hammer to sexually assault Wickstead, then used the claw end of the hammer to bludgeon her to death. Her body was found in her Malibu apartment on December 16, 1977. At the time these killings were taking place, Los Angeles was also being terrorized by the Hillside Strangler. That case would eventually be solved with cousins Kenneth Bianchi and Angelo Buono identified as the killers. Before their capture, as police were investigating the killings, they interviewed registered sex offenders in the Los Angeles area, including Rodney Alcala. When they questioned him, they found him to be in possession of a small amount of marijuana for which he would serve a short jail sentence. It was not long after his release that he began killing again. His next victim, 32-year-old Charlotte Lamb, was found dead in June of 1978 in the laundry room of her apartment building. She had been raped and strangled with a shoelace. The following summer, he would rape and strangle 21-year-old Jill Parento in her Burbank apartment. He cut himself on a window screen and left blood evidence behind, which would eventually tie him to the crime. Just days after Parento's body was discovered, Rodney Alcala approached a couple of preteen girls who were playing near their Huntington Beach home. He snapped a few pictures before a neighbor interrupted the photo session. Hours later, one of those girls, 12-year-old Robin Samso would again encounter Alcala as she rode her bike to ballet practice. This time, he snatched her off the street. Her remains were found scattered across a remote ravine in the Sierra Madre foothills 12 days later. Robin's friend and neighbor had both gotten a look at the stranger she'd encountered on the day she went missing, and they were able to describe the man for a composite sketch. 
A sketch of the curly-haired suspect was broadcast on the local news, and two days later, Alcala chemically straightened his hair, then cut it short. A few weeks after murdering Samso, and likely fearing that the police were closing in on him, Alcala told his girlfriend that he planned to move to Dallas, Texas to pursue new career opportunities. Before he could make that move, police executed a search warrant on Alcala's mother's home and found enough evidence to charge him with the murder of Robin Samso. Among the evidence they collected was a receipt for a storage locker in Seattle, Washington. Inside that storage locker, investigators found more than 1,700 photos and negatives, including a box of photos labeled Ode to New York by John Berger. Along with the photos, police also found a few pairs of earrings, including ones belonging to Robin Samso. Rodney Alcala stood trial for the kidnapping and murder of Robin Samso, for which a jury found him guilty in 1980 and recommended a death sentence. His conviction would later be overturned on the grounds that the jury was improperly informed about Alcala's prior sex crimes. Alcala stood trial again and was again found guilty, and for a second time his conviction was overturned due to a technicality. While he was in jail awaiting his third trial, Alcala wrote a book called You the Jury, in which he proclaimed his innocence. Advances in DNA technology after his arrest led to Alcala being identified as a suspect in several more cold case murders, and prosecutors filed a motion to jointly try Alcala for Samso's murder along with four others. In this, his third trial, Alcala chose to represent himself, and in February of 2010, he was found guilty for a third and final time. The following month, he was again sentenced to death. Immediately following his conviction, police released more than a hundred of the photos they had collected from Alcala's storage locker, hoping to identify some of the subjects. Many of those photos are still available to view online, and a few of the photo subjects have been identified. In the years that he's been on death row, Alcala has been connected through DNA to several other cold case murders, and is suspected to have committed many more. On July 24th of 2021, Alcala died of natural causes in Corcoran, California, where he had been incarcerated since his arrest. He was 77 years old. For a live discussion of this week's episode, you can join me on the Stereo app tomorrow, August 24th at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time. For daily true crime headlines, you can follow me on TikTok at True Crime Headlines. And for more stories, you can follow Murder Minute on Instagram and download the Murder Minute app. I'm Mrs. Smitty, and this has been Murder Minute.